It can be really hard for us to relax at night. We're always thinking about covering crime. But the good news is our wonderful new sponsor, Via, has a terrific product that helps us unwind. Via Hemp has a wide range of terrific gummies of both the THC and THC-free varieties. They can help you with focus, recovery, sleep, creativity, or just plain enjoyment. These products legally ship to all 50 states. I really liked Zen in particular. This is a yummy blueberry option that lets you catch a chill sleep with help from CBN and CBD. It's really helped me turn off my brain and settle down for the night. I also got a shout out Flow State. It helped me feel energized throughout the day. Like not to brag, but I got a lot done. I'm talking about doing several interviews and editing a whole show from start to finish, not to mention jumping on some of the latest filings in the cases we cover. It really made me feel sharp and ready to tackle any challenge. I couldn't recommend this more. Via has so many great gummy options to choose from. Everything from guava berry low dose that allows you to microdose THC to the chill-inducing Delta 9 gummy dreams. Head to viahemp.com and use code MSHEET to receive 15% off and one free sample of their award-winning gummies. That's viahemp.com and use code MSHEET at checkout. Please support our show and tell them we sent you. Enhance your every day with Via Hemp. Again, if you're 21 and over, you can get 15% off plus a free pack of award-winning gummies with our exclusive code, msheet at viahemp.com. That's V-I-I-A-H-E-M-P dot com. Getting the smile and confidence you've been dreaming about all from the comfort of your home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all your friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces, plus they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crowe portrays an ex-homicide detective unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Content warning. This episode contains discussion of murder, violence, sexual assault, and death by suicide. If you're in the United States and you're in urgent need of help, please call the Suicide and Crisis Lifeline at 988. This episode also contains profanity. In death, Stephen Presley looked very, very young. He was only 25 in the spring of 1980 when he was abducted, shot to death, and dumped in Johnson County, which borders the south side of Indianapolis. The black and white crime scene photos show Stephen Presley lying slumped over on his side. His eyes are closed. His hair is long and wild. His arms are out in front of him. He's wearing a jacket with striped cuffs, pants with a slight flare at the ankles, and boots with a bit of a heel. He's mustachioed in his mugshot, 
but he was clean-shaven at the time of his murder. Because of the way Stephen fell, all the blood trickled out from his nose and mouth onto one side of his face. The side of his face that would have been visible at first is clean. It's a cliché, but Presley truly did almost look like he was fast asleep from some angles. Police officers snapped photos of the body, abandoned along the side of a long and lonely driveway near a graveyard. They documented the scene, photographing tire impressions. At some point, they dragged over a tarp or blanket to cover Presley up. Then they took him away in a Myers ambulance for an autopsy. The coroner found that he'd been shot in the head three times. It was also documented that Presley had tax papers on him, along with the business card of Speedway Police Detective A.E. Smith. Authorities got to work investigating the murder. It appears to be an execution, Johnson County Sheriff's Department Deputy William Bradley told the Franklin Daily Journal for the May 26, 1980 issue. But it didn't mark an end to the violence. Several more murders or mysterious deaths would follow in the aftermath of Presley's slaying. We discussed some of those in our previous episode on this case, which has also been publicly linked to the Burger Chef murders by Johnson County law enforcement. Today, we'll get into how this all ended, or rather, how it didn't end. Because, despite a strong circumstantial case against Daryl Crabtree, and his family's drug racket, Stephen Presley's murder case is still technically unsolved. My name is Anya Kane. I'm a journalist. And I'm Kevin Greenlee. I'm an attorney. We first connected while looking into the Burger Chef murders, an Indiana cold case. Together, we built a spreadsheet documenting hundreds of cases of restaurant-related homicides. That original spreadsheet gave way to our podcast, The Murder Sheet. Now we maintain that same research-centric, investigative approach as we look into all sorts of homicides, including unsolved cases, historical crimes, and, of course, restaurant murders. We don't just chat about the headlines. Our podcast is a platform for our journalism. The Murder Sheet focuses on investigative reporting, thoughtful analysis, thorough research, and in-depth interviews. We're the murder sheet. And this is You Never Can Forget, The Crabtree Conspiracy. We would like to begin by thanking researcher Chris Davis for sharing his research on the Crabtree family with us, and also for giving us his thoughts on the police investigative file on the murder of Stephen Presley. We will be reading excerpts from those files today. When we begin or end reading an excerpt, you will hear this sound effect. <laughs> <laughs> 
People started talking about the death of Stephen Presley almost immediately. Here, for instance, is a Crabtree associate named Lisa talking with a police investigator. Did they tell? Have you heard where he was shot at? Or about what? I heard it was right down the road there. Well, I heard he was shot somewhere and then brought, dumped somewhere down the road there. Did they tell you in what part of the body he was shot? I heard in the head. In the head. Any. That was, that was all they said? Just shot in the head? I heard. All three times? Well, the, I heard so many stories. The first story I heard was he was shot in the head. Then I heard he was shot on one side of the head and the other side of the head. And then the next story I heard was that he was shot three times in the head by three different people. The idea that Presley's fatal gunshot wounds were inflicted by three different people was something that came up again and again in the investigation. The thinking was that if three separate people shot him, then none of the three could implicate the others without admitting his own guilt. As Johnson County Sheriff Doran Miller told the Franklin Daily Journal in 1993, if everyone participates, everyone's guilty. So it was, in short, a very effective way to guarantee silence and protect secrets. But the investigators, of course, kept trying. Here's Deputy William or Bill Bradley speaking with a man identified as Michael. Well, like I said, the main thing I'm interested in is who wasted Presley. Yeah. Is any of your friends, do you think any of your friends or anyone, do you know anybody that you are sure absolutely knows who killed him? That knows who killed him? Mm-hmm. Crabtree. Yeah, he'd know, you know? I mean, from what? That's that's just from hearsay. I mean, everything that I'm hearing, it points at Crabtree and Angel, you know? Michael mentioned someone named Angel. Who was that? He was referring to Ricky Angel. And that is a name that comes up again and again in the Stephen Presley case. Angel was a close associate of Daryl Crabtree. Angel died at the age of 60 back in 2019. He had a long criminal record for a variety of offenses. As late as 2018, less than a year before his death, he was charged with battery, domestic violence, battery resulting in bodily injury, and strangulation. Those charges arose from an incident that occurred on the afternoon of April 18, 2018. According to the probable cause affidavit in the case, Angel's girlfriend advised that she and Mr. Angel were inside the living room verbally arguing when Mr. Angel came towards her, grabbing her by her neck and pushed up against the wall near a mirror. She advised Mr. Angel was squeezing her neck tightly and she could not breathe, but did not lose consciousness. She advised Mr. Angel yelled, I'm going to fucking kill you, as he squeezed her neck. She advised her friend then grabbed Mr. Angel and pushed him off her. The responding officer reported noticing that the girlfriend's neck was red and pinkish in color. The charges in that case ended up being dismissed after Angel's girlfriend and others 
failed to respond to subpoenas. Back in the early 80s, there was quite a bit of talk about Angel's possible connection to the murder of Stephen Presley. Let's listen to another excerpt from Bill Bradley's interview with Michael. Do you imagine Angel was involved in Presley's killing? No doubt. No, I mean, just from what I hear, it's no doubt about it. The investigators took the suspicions about Angel's possible involvement very seriously. And they did not bother to keep their views secret. Both the Indianapolis Star and the Franklin Daily Journal reported that police believed that Presley was transported from Indianapolis to the site of his murder in Johnson County in a 1977 red Ford van owned by Ricky Angel. It was not clear from the articles if they believed Angel himself might have been personally involved in the killing, but the Franklin paper did report that Angel, Crabtree, and Presley were together on the night before Presley's body was discovered. With all that said, it is important to note that Angel's van was impounded by police not long after the death of Presley. But investigators must not have found any evidence inside it connecting it to the murder, as no charges were ever filed against Angel in connection with the Presley homicide. The general scenario of a murder victim being possibly transported from the Indianapolis area south to Johnson County in a van probably reminds you of what happened in the Burger Chef case. That is certainly a connection the Presley investigators also made. At one point in their file... They note that the modus operandi in this case is the same as that in Burger Chef. In that 1978 case, you will remember, four young people were kidnapped from Speedway, Indiana, and taken to Johnson County, where they were killed. Witness Alan Pruitt claimed that the victims were transported in an orange van. Could it be possible that the van he saw was actually the 1977 red van owned by Ricky Angel. It is a tantalizing possibility that has long intrigued us. If the same vehicle was used in both murders, it would answer quite a few questions and would clearly be an undeniable connection between the crab trees and Burger Chef. But now, thanks to these files, we can stop speculating about it because we have an answer. It was not the same van. The files include sales records which clearly establish that Ricky Angel bought his van in February of 1980. That is a couple of months before the Presley murder and close to a year and a half after Burger Chef. So again, it was not the same van. Let's get back to Detective Bradley's interview. Michael seemed convinced that Daryl Crabtree was responsible for Presley's death. And I've men I've mentioned to Daryl about Presley, and uh he's came off with some remarks, but never admitted to anything specific, you know? Cause I guess he just didn't want nobody, you know, anybody to have anything to say. I heard him say this. But uh what he tells me, this couldn't have been the guy that did it, you know, that's Yeah. That's just as good. And as far as I'm concerned, he said he shot the man. If you knew for sure, would tell us if you could prove it? Yeah, if I could, if I could prove it, I mean, I, I'm i looking at about 60 years when they get through running the rest of my cases. 
If I knew for sure, I would definitely uh, say, hey, this is what I know. Do something for me, you know? Uh-huh. I mean, because uh, I wouldn't tell if if I wasn't going to prison with me. Shit, you know, that's for sure. I'm already going to prison with a dude that's getting 50 years, and I gave him the case. And he knows I gave him the case. I'm not fond of dying that early in life, you know, too young in the game. Michael was far from the only one who seemed certain of Crabtree's complicity in the crime. In a 1982 police interview, a man named Thomas describes how the murder occurred. And the story he tells seems to be quite close to what investigators believe actually happened. Daryl told me, Daryl Crabtree told me this. High bragging about it one night, and uh, they abided uh, their time until Presley got a hold of some desoxin. He had something like four or five hundred pills of him, and he was on a little rampage. And they knew they could catch him strung out and catch the drop on him. They kind of set up a little trap for him, saying they wanted to buy some dope, all was made well, no hard feelings, and stuff like that. They leered him into the valley. The valley being the area around Oliver Street, around around Chevrolet, and leered him to their house on coffee, whereupon they, they grabbed him, handcuffed him. Man number one, that's Daryl's brother, and Daryl started to beat him up, punch him around, that shit. Uh, they said they burned him with cigarettes and all kinds of shit. I don't know if they did that or not. Uh, threatened to cut him with knives and all kinds of shit. And uh, something was said, somebody got hot, and man number one said, fuck it, we're taking him out. So man number one and Daryl and man number two grabbed him up and put him in a van. Do you know whose van it was? No, I don't know whose. They never could tell whose car they were driving. They were either driving somebody else's car, somebody's car they had borrowed and didn't take back, or a rental car. You never could tell whose car they were in. And in Put him in the van. They took him out, and man number one shot him. Did they shoot him before they got him down here in Johnson County? Yeah, they shot him in Marion County, and I believe it was with a thirty-eight. And I think it was Norma Jean. That's their ma. That's Norma Jean Crabtree. I think it was Norma Jean's thirty-eight, a little itty-bitty Chrome Smith & Wesson Model 36. And uh, took him down here at County Line Road, and Daryl says that he pumped another one in him. He said it just like that. I pumped another one in the fucking snitch. And they dumped him out and went about their business. Do you know where he was shot or anything on his body? They said in the head. Well, they shot him once in the mouth and once in the head. Well, they just told me in the head. They said what? Because he was getting weak, they felt. They thought he was weak and a security risk. But then, see, Presley's wife, girlfriend or whatever, she knew too much, and uh, they knew they were going to have to take care of her. And that's when Norma Jean, after going over and trying to intimidate her, made the statement to Daryl that something's got to be done. I really don't know which one of them, you know, lit the match that burned her trailer up, but I know that it was Daryl and man number one doing it. And I think man number two was along on that one, too. Man number two, you got to understand about this little circle over here, where because Daryl was the king of the hill, everybody followed him around. And man number two is like their little chump, their gopher boy. And man number one was their enforcer. Man number one's got a bad reputation for beating up cops. 
not just beating them up when they're trying to arrest him, going out and finding one and beating him up. He's got six sets of handcuffs that he's taken from IPD cops clipped to his bed. I seen him, you know, and when Daryl was telling me that he pumped another one in that snitch, Presley, he was looking me right in the eye. And you could tell he meant it. You know, you could tell. You could tell that he, you know, and you could just see the blood in his eyes, you know. But Daryl Crabtree told you that he was there and he specifically did it. Did he shoot him both times? No, man number one. Man number one shot him the first time. But you don't have any idea whose van it was in? No, I don't. I don't know whose van it could have been. Like I say, they had so many cars over there that they, you know. Do you know if they hung out with a guy named Angel or Ricky Angel? Ricky Angel? Yes, that was another one of their cronies. I don't think he was along on this one. Do you know, did he have a van? I don't know. A van? Did Ricky own a van? I didn't know Ricky Angel. You know, it seems like he did, but I really don't know. I really don't know. I can't say for sure. So the police definitely felt confident they knew who committed this crime. As far as I'm concerned, Johnson County Sheriff Dorn Miller told the Franklin Daily Journal in 1993, we know who murdered Stephen Presley. But no one ever faced any charges related to Presley's death. Why not? There would be enough to file charges if we had a witness, Sheriff Miller explained in that 1993 interview with the Daily Journal. This group of people always made sure there were no witnesses. That's always been a hang-up in the case. To be fair, Sheriff Miller made a good point. We have told you, for instance, about Jana Price. She may have actually seen the murder of Stephen Presley. At the very least, she possessed crucial knowledge about who was responsible for the crime. Just a short time after the murder, she was found burned alive in her trailer. The fire that killed her was an act of arson, and the blaze started not long after she received a visit from Daryl Crabtree. That sort of thing not only directly eliminates witnesses, but it also makes other people with knowledge feel too scared to talk. And it is that fear and that silence that made it impossible for Stephen Presley to get justice. And so, the people who were likely involved with the murder never faced consequences for it. Ricky Angel, as we've mentioned, is dead. Norma Jean Crabtree died at the age of 55 back in 1989. Her obituary did not mention anything about the drug ring she ran with her other family members but merely noted that she had worked at RCA for 10 years. Although he never faced any criminal charges connected to the death of Stephen Presley, Daryl Crabtree spent many years in prison on a variety of drug and robbery charges. While incarcerated, Crabtree developed a reputation. According to a lawsuit filed by Jason Billman, Crabtree had, quote, a propensity to rape other inmates, unquote is if that were not horrible enough, Crabtree had AIDS. When he raped other men at the prison, he was therefore also exposing them to the deadly virus. Billman, who was assigned to the same cell with Crabtree, ended up being raped by him, and therefore needing AIDS tests every 90 days. He filed suit against the Indiana Department of Corrections for failing to protect him from Crabtree. Meanwhile, 
Crabtree got released from prison and became a self-employed floor technician. He died in 2012. The Crabtree family, as we've made clear, associated with drug dealers, murderers, and sexual offenders. But it is possible they may have also had some friends in high places, and that those connections may have helped protect them over the years. A weight loss journey can feel like a lonely struggle, but it doesn't have to be. For so many of us, lifestyle changes like deciding to lose weight, adopting a nutritious diet, and taking up fun exercises are all about putting our own health and wellness first. But it can be really hard to know where to begin or how to keep the weight off once we've seen some progress. Quick fixes like soup diets and juice cleanses are unsustainable. There's a much better way to embark on this journey that over 200,000 people have already chosen. We're talking about the Row Body Program. Here's how it works. Row gives you access to one of the most popular weight loss shots on the market. Their Row Body Program then sets up a comprehensive weight loss program tailored to your specific lifestyle, health status, and goals. In addition to the weekly shot, you get one-on-one coaching with a registered nurse. That can help you adopt and stick with lifestyle changes like exercise routines and nutritious diets. It's a comprehensive program that sees participants lose 15 to 20% of their weight in a year on average. But the real benefit is that you keep that weight off. This is weight loss at its most sustainable. With Roe, the average weight loss is 15 to 20% of your weight in one year, in conjunction with healthy lifestyle changes. BMI and other eligibility criteria apply. Go to roe.co slash msheet. Sign up today and you'll pay just $99 for your first month and $145 a month after that. Medication costs are separate. Go to roe.co slash msheet. That's roe.co slash msheet. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. One of the investigators who seemed to think the crab trees could be behind a strain of local corruption was Detective Sergeant William, or Bill, Gayford Bradley. Here's some background on Bradley. He was a graduate of the former Maxwell High School in Maxwell, Indiana. He served in the Navy during the Korean War and later attended the Indiana Law Enforcement Academy in Bloomington. He graduated from that program in 1970 and joined the Johnson County Sheriff's Department as a patrolman in 1971. He was highly regarded in law enforcement circles. Johnson County Sheriff J. Robert Haw trusted Bradley and appreciated his diligence as a detective. As of the fall of 1980, something seemed to be troubling Bradley. 
he would complain to the sheriff about mysterious aches and pains. That being said, on the emotional front, he seemed okay, according to Hall. Judging from the thickness of the file on the Presley homicide, Bradley had quite the case on his hands. There are indications in the files that investigators, including Bradley, may have been looking into connections between drug rings like the Crabtrees and local power players in law enforcement and politics. Again, it's just a hint in the files and nothing terribly concrete. Meanwhile, Bradley worked lots of different kinds of cases for Johnson County. He was the investigating agent in the case of a man named Paul Palmer Jr. Paul Palmer Jr. was a 34-year-old self-employed auto dealer who originally came from Little Rock, Arkansas. A photo of Palmer that ran in the newspaper shows a thin man donning a military uniform and a huge smile. He drove a yellow Chevrolet Corvette Stingray. He was involved in the drug scene. In July of 1980... Palmer got busted in Johnson County during a marijuana deal. Facing jail time, he ended up flipping and working with both the Federal Drug Enforcement Administration and the Indiana State Police. On November 7, 1980, Palmer received a sentence of a one-year-long drug probation in exchange for his cooperation. But he was not able to enjoy his newfound freedom for long. On the morning of November 10, 1980, Palmer was in Edge and B's Motors, a used car lot where he worked. It was about 9.10 a.m. Palmer was standing in front of a desk working on a fuse box. He wasn't alone. Car lot employee John Hamilton was sitting at the desk. A masked man burst into the building, walked up to Palmer, and shot him in the back of the head before he could even turn around. After executing Palmer, the murderer ordered Hamilton to lie on the ground. The killer then broke the wires off the desk phone and dug through Palmer's pockets. Then, finally, he left. He did not hurt Hamilton. Police later discovered that Palmer's wallet was gone, but the gunman did not appear to take anything from the office. Witnesses came forward saying the murderer had been lurking around the car lot for hours, since 6.30 a.m., with his multicolored ski mask rolled up. He had been waiting for Palmer, and when he got his chance, he had not hesitated. After Palmer's death, Indianapolis DEA Director William Kirsten did an interview with the Indianapolis star's Mary Beth Balika. He told the newspaper that the man had done some work for us, but not now denying the report that Palmer had been working on an important case when he was gunned down. Speaking about the cases Palmer was working on, Indiana State Police Lieutenant Charles P. Williams said, they were not that heavy. It's a bit of a puzzle. It is not clear who exactly was responsible for Palmer's death. But there seems to be a strong likelihood that it had something to do with his work as an informant for law enforcement. Close to a year later, in October 1981, the Franklin Daily Journal would run an article on the use of informants in drug operations. It would highlight the need to keep the identity of those informants strictly confidential because of the dangers they faced. Let's quote from that article directly. 
The foremost thing to me is the welfare of the informant, said a Johnson County Sheriff's deputy who specializes in narcotics investigations. I have no right to endanger his life. From there, the article moves into a discussion of the death of Paul Palmer. Is there an implication there that his death may have resulted from law enforcement not doing a good enough job protecting his identity? To put it bluntly, did Palmer die because someone screwed up? In any case, more death would soon follow. At 9 p.m. on November 11, 1980, somebody entered the third apartment at 750 West Madison Avenue in Franklin, Indiana. They went into the bedroom. Lying on the bed was the body of a 45-year-old man. He had been shot in the head. He was dead. The dead man wasn't another drug informant or Crabtree associate. He was the man whose notes we've been reading to you. He was the detective investigating the Crabtrees, Detective Sergeant William, or Bill, Gayford Bradley. In a November 12, 1980 article for the Franklin Daily Journal, staff writer Chris Cummings spoke to Indiana State Police Detective Ken York about Bradley's death. If York's name sounds familiar, that's because he was a major architect of the robbery gang theory in the Burgershev case. York said the police removed several firearms from Bradley's apartment, including a revolver, and, as far as he knew, the deceased detective owned all of those guns. The story went that Bradley's best friend saw him late Monday evening, and that Bradley was never seen alive again. In the interview, Cummings brought up Palmer's murder. York discounted a connection between the two cases, saying somewhat paradoxically that he was keeping an open mind. There were no signs of a break-in or a struggle in Bradley's apartment. Now, we've talked to law enforcement officials who were there back then in 1980. One in particular, whose opinion we respect highly, told us that he reviewed the photos taken of the scene and of Bradley's body. He didn't think that anything looked amiss. He thought it was a suicide. Officials at the time agreed. The Indianapolis Star reported in November of 1980 that investigators were leaning towards a self-inflicted gunshot wound. On January 6, 1981, Johnson County Coroner Richard E. Tudor reported that he had conducted tests that proved Bradley died by suicide, that he had shot himself in the head with a gun he held in his right hand. It is worth noting that Bradley had recently gone through a divorce at the time of his death. And of course, Palmer had just been murdered. As the investigating detective on his case, perhaps Bradley felt some personal responsibility for that death. Either of those things could have helped push him to the edge. Our law enforcement source told us that not everyone agreed with the suicide theory. He told us that Bradley's best friend on the force, who has since died, never accepted that conclusion. That man was convinced the detective had been murdered. A photo that ran in the newspaper gives us just a glimpse of Bradley. He's got a full head of hair and a pointy nose. He's wearing big 80s glasses and a colored shirt. In the snap, Bradley is looking down, his face mostly obscured by shadows. 
Given his life's work and the suddenness of his death, that seems oddly fitting. We're going to take a moment to insert our own opinions here. In the world of fiction, characters are often killed or nearly killed after getting too close to the truth. Watch any thriller, read any mystery. It's a ubiquitous plot point. In real life, it's quite rare for that to happen, at least in the United States. We're not commenting on law enforcement officers getting killed in the line of duty. We're talking about the specific scenario of a detective getting murdered to cover up a larger crime. This is rare, probably for one solid reason. If you're attempting to keep the lid on your big conspiracy, killing a law enforcement officer to do so is one surefire way of bringing the heat down on your scheme. We wish to note that we don't feel we have enough information to come to a definitive conclusion about Bradley's death ourselves. We haven't seen pictures or the autopsy report. In most contested cases of suicide, we tend to believe that a victim's loved ones have an understandable incentive to cling to denial and seek to offload blame onto a third party. That's not just based on our observations within the true crime space. Again and again, psychological research has indicated that bereavement after a loved one's suicide looks different than bereavement after other types of deaths. We'll link to a few studies on this. That being said, the timing of Palmer's death and the fact that Bradley seemed to be putting together links between the crab trees and larger, more connected players is notable. It fills us with dread to say this, but we do wonder about Bradley's death. At this time, we don't feel that he was definitely murdered. We think it's more likely he died by suicide. It's possible that Palmer's murder even triggered a mental health crisis for Detective Bradley. We can't say that this is certainly the case. It is merely speculation. And while it's tempting to link the death of Bradley with the murders of Presley or Palmer, we don't feel at all certain that there is a link there. Suffice to say, we have far more questions than answers. One question that we imagine most of our listeners have is, does this all link back to the Burger Chef case? Well, frankly, there's nothing in the file that seems to definitively link Presley to the Burger Chef case. It's been speculated in the past that Presley served as the driver in the Burger Chef murders. But nowhere in this file did Bradley or other detectives speculate that Presley had helped commit the murders or provided support to the murderers, like driving the getaway car. His name simply never comes up in connection with anything like that. We're not saying the Crabtrees and their associates weren't involved in Burger Chef. It is actually quite possible that they were. These were deeply violent people. We are certainly intrigued by the stories the Crabtrees attacked and perhaps murdered Stephen Presley in Marion County and then drove him down to Johnson County to dump his body. It's slightly different from the Burger Chef case. Jane Freed, Ruth Shelton, Danny Davis, and Mark Flemons were abducted, driven to Johnson County, and murdered there, whereas at least some of the stories indicate Presley had already been shot by the time he was left in that driveway. But the transportation element still sounds familiar. One thing that goes against the idea that the Crabtrees were involved in the Burger Chef murders 
is the fact that Daryl Crabtree seemed to spiral in the aftermath of the attack on Terry King, as we discussed in last week's episode. In response to that attack, which was not even a homicide, Crabtree seemingly became paranoid to the point that he likely orchestrated multiple murders to protect himself. It seems odd that he would have this reaction to the King situation and not to a high-profile quadruple homicide that occurred two years earlier. We are certainly intrigued by the few instances where the Burger Chef case does come up in the Presley files. We wish Detective Bradley was still around so that we could go through the file with him and ask him some questions. One conclusion that we do hold with, Daryl Crabtree had Stephen Presley killed. It's pretty clear that there was a strong circumstantial case against Crabtree for that crime. But, like most developments in this case, this file just raises more questions. You can help us answer some of those questions. If you were involved in the Indianapolis-area drug scene in the 1970s, if you knew any of the Crabtrees, their associates, or anyone we've mentioned on this program, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. The four victims of the Burger Chef murders, Jane Freet, Ruth Shelton, Danny Davis, and Mark Flemons, deserve justice. But so do all of the other people who lost their lives in some of these senseless crimes we've mentioned. You do not have to be scared anymore. Daryl Crabtree is dead. He cannot hurt anyone. What's more, if you come to us with a tip, we will keep your name off the show if that's your preference. Don't sit on information. These cases are not going to get solved if we don't talk to each other. Help us shine a light on these mysteries. Thanks so much for listening to The Murder Sheet. If you have a tip concerning one of the cases we cover, please email us at murdersheet at gmail.com. If you have actionable information about an unsolved crime, please report it to the appropriate authorities. If you're interested in joining our Patreon, that's available at www.patreon.com slash murdersheet. If you want to tip us a bit of money for records requests, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash murdersheet. We very much appreciate any support. Special thanks to Kevin Tyler Greenley, who composed the music for the murder sheet, and who you can find on the web at kevintg.com. If you're looking to talk with other listeners about a case we've covered, you can join the Murder Sheet discussion group on Facebook. We mostly focus our time on research and reporting, so we're not on social media much. We do try to check our email account, but we ask for patience as we often receive a lot of messages. Thanks again for listening. Audible is the destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Allow your imagination to be piqued by stories that are brought to life through captivating sound design, eerie soundscapes, and dynamic performances. 
as an Audible member, you'll be able to keep your heart rate up month after month because you can choose one title a month to keep from the entire catalog, including the latest bestsellers and new releases. If you're in the mood for a shocking psychological thriller, check out None of This is True by Lisa Jewell. Embrace brand new exclusive thrillers from bestselling authors who are guaranteed to keep you gripped. New members can try Audible free for 30 days. Visit audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500. That's audible.com slash thrill or text thrill to 500-500.